Welcome, my friends, to the first episode of the Where Today Meets Tomorrow podcast, brought to you by Siemens. Ah, it's got that brand new device smell, hasn't it? Um. I'm your host, Ginny Sarasvati, and I cannot wait to unscrew the outer shell and look at all those intricate, interconnected ways that digital transformation is unfolding in our world. All under, of course, the expert supervision of my guests. My guest today is Ken Aman, an executive consultant at SimData. On this episode, we talked about what the digital twin is, and we did a lot of prospecting about the future. But I'm going to start with a pop quiz, as you do. Can you guess what Disney film Ken was referring to when he said this? Let's get out there and go find what's going on in the world. Get out there and explore. There's so much out there to learn and see and do, and you can challenge yourself in any different way you want it to. Keep listening, and maybe you'll guess from the kind of person Ken is. All I can say is that I felt his choice of Disney film was highly appropriate to the work he does. All will be revealed at the end of the show. In 1967, Ken graduated from Georgia Tech as an aerospace engineer. Since then, he's had an awesome career that has covered so much. He's worked with Boeing, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, GE, PwC, you name it, all before coming to SimData. Essentially, Ken solves big picture business challenges with technology. What is a company trying to accomplish? How do they work today and where do they want to be in the future? How's your supply chain put together? How do you work with your partners? How do you relate to your customers? Because customers are all wanting, one of the drivers for complexity is a desire by the customer for personalization. So they want everything to be personalized. They want it their way. I want my specific version of this to be designed and tailored specifically for me. So that brings another level of complexity into the equation. How do you manage all these different configurations and things of that nature and be able to one, design them and validate them, prove that they work, be able to build them efficiently and profitably, and then be able to sustain them and support them as they go through their use and service and, and you have to update them and maintain them. So complexity touches a lot of different areas, and that's where a lot of the challenges I think that people are driving to is trying to put environments together that can gather the information from a variety of different sources, put it into coherent forms, put it into context for, so that only you only need to look at what you need to look at. That's one of the real problems is if I go out and do a Google search, I may get 200,000 hits doesn't mean anything to me. What I need are the top three or four that mean something to me. And inside a business, as they deal with this complexity, this increasing complexity of information, information coming from multiple sources, different types of sources that used to be completely siloed but are now having to interact, we're seeing the, the need to build environments that enable people to gather that information and to ask for that information across that complex environment and be able to trust that the information coming back to them is what they need and that it's clear and concise and valid for their purposes. Ken has helped a lot of companies solve a lot of problems, but when I asked him what he thought was a highlight of his career, he took me back to a much earlier time when he was designing for Project Apollo. Five, four, three, two, 
one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Yes. That program that ended up taking U.S. astronauts to outer space. That Project Apollo. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. For me, the most personal satisfaction was being part of the Saturn Apollo program. I grew up around airplanes all my life. My dad was in the Air Force. From the time I was like 12 years old, I knew I wanted to be an aerospace engineer or back then an aeronautical engineer. So being able to participate in that and to be able to be part of that organization to help help advance mankind's knowledge and to be able to put men on the moon was probably the most personally satisfying thing I ever did. You were able to influence putting people out of this world. It really is a concept that's out of this world, literally and figuratively. Can you tell me what it was like at that time actually envisioning this really cool notion of, okay, we're going to put people in outer space? It was an interesting time. I was living in Huntsville, Alabama, and we were all working probably a few more hours per day than we really wanted to every day. And we had a vision. John F. Kennedy had set that vision and said to put men on the moon and return them safely by the end of the decade. And that's really where we were. We were working, working to do that. So in my area was working with how do we get them there? And so I was learning a, a whole lot about things that they really never taught me much in, when I was in college in terms of how do you design what they call a hyperconic, the ability to put somebody onto essentially a surface of transfer to transfer them from the Earth's orbit to the moon's orbit and be able to work with that. And we're working with people, and, and this was the very early days of, of computing, so we had some limited capabilities, uh, control aid of 3200s, IBM 7094s, some very, very basic equipment compared to what we have today, nothing like what we have on our phones. And so it was a challenge, but it was also my introduction to working with, with teams of people and understanding what I had to do to contribute to those teams and what I had to be able to ask them for to help me do the job that I needed to do. So that was, that was a challenge. So we would be working and working, trying to make sure that we understand where we were going, how our part fit into somebody else's, but also just to make sure that we were doing the best job that we could so we could come up with the new technology because we were inventing a lot of new capabilities at that point in time. Sending humans to the moon? You set the bar pretty high for the rest of your career there, Ken. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the Sea of Tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. People like Ken are doing so many amazing things with tech. I asked where he thinks all these great developments in digitalization will take us. I certainly see us continuing the exploration of space. That, I think, is one of the, the ability of us to look up at the sky and wonder what's out there. And are there other intelligent life forms out there? Certainly, that's a vast area. You know, when you look at the size of the universe, I think our technology is going to help us to try and communicate further out there, but also try to explore out there. You know, we look at our next step as, as we talk about going to Mars. The limiting factors that we're going to see in the near term are just 
Can we sustain people's life while they're traveling in that environment for a long time? So I think the technologies are there. The, the ability to evolve and develop the technologies to create the propulsion, to create the communications, to expand our ability to do that, I think are there. And they're going to give us a whole new way of looking as we get further away from our little Earth and get further out, we'll see more, we'll understand more, and that'll give us even more capability to push ourselves further. And I think that's part of the whole human human aspect, the thing that makes us human is our curiosity, our, our insatiable desire to go out there and see more and learn more. Tech helps us to gaze at the stars, figuratively and literally. It's people like Ken who help make these ideas concrete. And this is no small task. The more expansive and complex the ideas, the more difficult it is to actually make them a reality. We can't afford to expend all this manpower and materials to make a bit new IT investment, only to find that something doesn't work. This is where the digital twin comes in. Digital twin comes in. No, that's not another name for your online self or virtual doppelganger. The digital twin is a virtual representation of real world products and systems. Ken says that the twin lets us put our ideas for physical products in a digital environment. We can test them and see how they work together with other devices without a single screwdriver in sight. The possibilities for the digital twin are almost limitless. You can have this virtual image, then as you do anything or you change the physical device, it is reflected in that virtual environment or that you can take that virtual environment, that virtual representation, try to simulate it, test it, put loads on it, do things with it, and see how the physical device, the physical twin will actually react. And this is one of those complex areas that, that continues to grow. We're seeing more and more embedment of the use of a digital twin throughout every type of industry that we really talk to today. It's not just the what I call the discrete manufacturers, although that's really where it started heavily. We're seeing it being used everywhere in industries that you'd never thought of. But they're saying, if I can virtually simulate, virtually visualize this thing that I'm trying to make or see the strain that I'm trying to work with, it can really help me. I can eliminate having to build physical items. I can test them out without having to try, the, without having to, to build and destroy them. I can determine whether a factory will work. I can do a, what's called a virtual commissioning because I have a twin of that factory, a virtual twin of the factory that I can then test out, will this assembly line work? But while we're busy using the digital twin to gaze into the stratosphere, Ken's also there to make sure that we've got our feet on the ground. It's important, he says, that we establish ground rules before we jet off with our ideas. For Ken, the key is to ensure everyone knows when they start a project exactly what they mean by the term digital twin. What is the definition of a digital twin? And I guarantee you that if you ask 40 different consultants, you'll get at least 41 different answers. And that's one of the real challenges, I think, with the concept. It's a broad concept that continues to get broader, and it, it has increasingly value. And that's not the end of the story. When we create and create and create, whether it's the digital twin or anything else, we all also need to understand how the digital environment works. It's not enough to say that we want technology. Moving from paper to digital, from office to working from home, means so much more than a change of scenery. 
We have to understand how all the underlying systems and apps work and how to make the most of these things for new ways of getting things done. And there are similar complications and upsides when we're talking about entire teams, companies, supply chains, and even entire industries embracing digitalization. Just converting the data to digital format is not enough. That's merely digitizing it. What companies are really struggling with and what they really need to do is they need to go through what we call digital transformation or digitalization. And that really is it's getting down to the use of all these different digital technologies to change their business model, how they work, how they sell, how they support, how they create value, how they make a profit. That's really a digital transformation that companies are having to go through. And so part of the exercise, yes, is converting things to digital format. But a bigger part of that exercise is understanding what is a digital enterprise and how it works. How do we change the way in which we leverage these digital capabilities? That may be the digital twin. It may be QR codes. It may be AV files for our service people. It may be a lot of different things like that that are getting in there. And I think that's one of the real challenges that companies are going through. We see companies at every stage of trying to do this. Some companies are fairly advanced. They're working at it very hard. We see other companies that, in my opinion, have their head in the sand because they're not even thinking about it. And they're going to be out of business before long, in my opinion, because you're going to have to do this. It's transforming the way just the way we talked about transforming the way people think about products and the complexity of them, this is transforming the way people think about their business model and how they work. So when companies say they are becoming digital, what do they mean? What difference does it make for their end users, for their customers, for all of us? The ideas that we have, the research we undertake to make them concrete, and then all the questions come up and data that's generated as these new things we're building are actually used in the world. This all comes with a huge degree of complexity, which is not always easy to navigate. Years ago, the differentiation between a given model or a capability in a car was mechanical. Today, it's almost always software. And that's true in many, many, many other products. That's where the bulk of our our difference has been, and one of the complexities that has come in now is the fact that instead of just designing mechanical things, you have to design electromechanical things, and mechatronics, so to speak. And so people weren't trained to do that very well. So they have to think differently in terms of how they're going to think about these complex things. Where is all this information coming from? And that's the real challenge, because now information is being created and used in a variety of different areas. And one of the real challenges is how do you manage that? How do you make it available to people in a way that they can use it? And as we've increased and gotten more complex, more and more data or information is being created. So instead of having a little bit, you've got a mountain full, an avalanche in some cases of, of information coming at you. And what you need to be able to do is to take that analyze it and just bring forth to the individual the information, the specific information that they need. And that's how you, you want to begin to deal with that complexity. So you need tools and solutions that help gather that information, that can manage that information, that can understand the role and the context in which it is and in which it needs to be used. And that's one of the really the informational complexity challenge that I think a lot of people are doing with. We have more and more ways to connect, to share data. But all these new tools we now have leave some of us scratching our heads. How can we navigate the shift that's underway? 
where more and more of our day-to-day workflows will be online, automated and global. What digital processes do we need to keep business going? These questions are so important now. The coronavirus pandemic has driven many of us to work from home, a reality many expect to persist long after the health crisis is over. Digitalization helps us bring our expertise together. It's true, but we still need to understand how digital environments help to make us more efficient. Ken talks about his consulting work on Boeing 787 Dreamliner. So one of the things we were trying to do with Boeing was really help them understand, you've classically grown up, and most companies have, with all these distributed organizations who didn't share information very well for a variety of reasons. Sometimes because people didn't want to share, sometimes because they didn't have the tools to share, sometimes they didn't know how to capture that information and reuse it. And so what we were trying to do was help them understand how to do that. What were their requirements for really moving that forward? What kind of tools could they use and how they could apply them to be able to do that so that they could bring together, you get some brilliant person, you ask them to come up with an idea, they'll come up with something that's probably pretty good. But if you let people work together, if you bring in some more people and let them collaborate and ask questions and and feed off of each other and think a little bit about it, you'll get something that's much, much better than what any individual can do. And so that's one of the things we were trying to help Boeing do was to help more effectively bring that collaborative environment together where they could really share and leverage that information, maintain those lessons learned, be able to understand where they need to go and to know who they could go to ask for help. So how is this sea change reshaping the way that companies keep their information secure? If we all start tinkering with our digital twin from home, what's to stop people from stealing our ideas? We had a call from a couple of different aerospace companies asking that very thing, saying, look, we've always wanted to keep our knowledge inside the house and keep our people working together inside the house so we could control that security. But we can't now. So we've got to find ways in which to allow people to work more remotely. As we look at the whole issue of security in the cloud over the last, oh, seven to eight years, when we first started talking about people moving into working in the cloud, most people said, oh, it's it's not secure. We're worried about our security. And we'd ask them, well, by the way, how do you do your banking? How do you How do you do your finance? That's all being done in the cloud. Technology dramatically changes the way we see ourselves and the way that we think about privacy. And thanks to the McGrandin of digitalization, things can change rapidly. We never thought we'd ever have to have people working remotely, and now all of a sudden we're doing it. So what are the devices they're going to use? Do we have to give them special hardened laptops that have special security in it so that they can work remotely? Certainly, you don't want anybody working with classified information on a phone, on a smartphone. They're they're just not secure enough. I mean, they have different levels of security, but frankly, you wouldn't want to put anything that's highly sensitive out on that. So we're seeing them struggle with that. I think that's going to be something that's not going to get resolved anytime soon. I think every company will have to look at that a little differently. And I think there will be some people that they will begin to let work remotely as they figure this out. I think there will be some other people that never will be able to work remotely. 
simply because of the sensitivity of what information they're working on and the requirement to be in direct access with the network and and there's not outside ports into the environment. So that's going to be a real challenge and it's not going to be a simple one to solve because part of it is also driven by regulation. It's one thing to say we can do this for instance, say, well, we figured out a secure way to manage so this person can work remotely. And then the government says, well, no, our International Trade and Arms Regulations, ITAR, says you can't do that. And until that law changes or until that regulation changes, you still can't do it. Ken wasn't totally positive that these conflicting interests would be resolved quickly. Not all companies can afford to have their staff work from home, especially those in the automotive and aeronautical industries. People ultimately have to be there, in factories, to assemble and build these machines. We talked with one company. They had shut down for two weeks, uh, almost three weeks, I guess. This was about a month ago. And they were completely redesigning their production line. They were spacing it out. They were moving where certain activities had to be done. And they were saying, we know that when we go back into production, when we bring people back into this facility, we're going to have to be more careful with it. We're going to have to have different ways of their interacting. And so they're really struggling. I think executives are struggling with, what do I do that? How much do I have to do? What's it going to afford? What can I do? And is it even possible giving my environment? I can't just stop and tear down every, every factory I have and rebuild them. Financially, that's not possible. Time-wise, that's not possible. If they've got a physical environment, what can they do in that physical environment to help protect those human resources and still be efficient? It's one thing to say I can spread everything out, but now is that going to be an efficient factory? Is that going to be an efficient production line? Or is it going to cost me a, a significant amount more to make the same number of items that I made before, and is it going to take me a lot longer to do it? And so those are issues, some of the major issues that I think executives are are really struggling with today, trying to understand how they can go forward. These are some of the challenges that Ken and the companies he advises, like Siemens, are working on. How to create a connected and secure future. While I had Ken, the man, if you remember, who started his career on the Apollo program, I thought it'd be wise to ask for tips on getting a job in STEM. Ken said that one way to make yourself employable was to really spend time understanding how the changes you make affect everything else down the line, from people, products, and ways of working. Pay more attention to the holistic environment, more what we would call systems engineering, but try to have a broader understanding of the overall capability of whatever it is you're working on. Don't just look at your little piece. Try to have a better understanding of how everything is fitting together. I think one of the challenges that that we have today is that people don't have an appreciation, as much appreciation as they need, of the implications of what they do on other people. And so one of the things that I would would tell people who are trying to work in this new age is, one, be digital savvy, pay attention to what's going on. You don't have to be on the leading edge of everything, but you need to understand how it works. And then pay attention to what you're doing in the context of others. Assume that you have customer, that every everything you do has a customer for it that's going to be consumed by somebody else and that they need for that to be useful to them. And so try to understand how you're, what you do is going to impact other areas. So if you're, I'm a manufacturing design engineer, I need to understand better how manufacturing 
manufacturing works so that I understand the, the problems that, that they have in manufacturing. So I don't design something that's incredibly difficult to manufacture. And if I just changed it a little bit, it would be much more efficient and cheaper to manufacture. It sounds like Ken was really ahead of his time, given the broad career trajectory he had himself. So it came as no surprise to me that his favourite Disney film, wait for it, centred around living in an expansive world of our own imagination. Ken, just to summarise, what is your favourite Disney movie? Uh, this goes back a long, long, long way. <laughs> Peter Pan. <laughs> Peter Pan. Is there some form of like, is it because you also believe you want to stay young forever? Oh, that's a that's a part of it. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and of course, you know, First start of the right and on till morning is a great line. It shows up in Star Trek a couple of different times. I look at that as, as, as one of the things. Let's get out there and go find what's going on in the world. Get out there and explore. There's so much out there to learn and see and do. And you can challenge yourself in any different way you want it to. And to me, that, that's part of the, the, the joy of being out and active and, and still learning. Fantastic, Ken. Thank you so much for your time today on the Accelerator podcast by Siemens. Been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and hearing your thoughts and insights on what's coming up in the future. Tell the good people where they can find more information about you and SimData. You can find more information about me at simdata.com or you can check for me at k.amann at simdata.com. I look forward to talking with anybody. It's a great, great thing to learn. And I learn more from you people than you'll probably ever learn from me. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Where Today Meets Tomorrow podcast. I'm Ginny Sarasvati, and it's been my delight to take you through this journey. For more information about the digital twin and how companies use this technology, take a look at the Siemens website at siemens.com.